Oral Histories of the National Railway Museum. John Evans is a former South Australian Railways employee, an author and owner of one of the largest collections of train orders in the world. Speaking here with Peter Hackworth in 2017, John talks about starting off in the South Australian Railways and his train order collection. You decide you want to become a train controller. Yep. Did, did you matriculate? I did, yes. And then what did you do? I joined the railways. And what did you join as? I joined as a junior clerk in 1967. So the intent was still there to become a train controller. Where were you? Oh, I was in the Adelaide Superintendent's office. And do you remember that first day? Oh, very well, very clearly. Yeah, 3rd of January 1967. Yeah. I remember it vividly. Yes, this was the big eye-opener. So tell us about that first day. It turned out to be a great leveller, I've got to tell you, because I, I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. I'd arranged my employment in June the previous year with a view career-wise of doing various examinations and studies and so forth with a view to becoming a, a train controller. And of course at the end of a very quick intro through the office and the typing pool and what have you, my first duty was to take the lunch orders. <laughs> <laughs> Great leveller. We have to remember that certain conventions, shall we say, that had to be met back in those days. Yeah. You were on a, a mister sort of basis with various people. There was a system of buzzers, four buzzers, and you knew that was the assistant superintendent Metro who wanted something. So you'd go around to see this fellow in his office. We sealed envelopes with sealing wax. We had this arrangement whereby if a station wanted to a new biro, they sent the empty one in and the biros went back in an envelope which we declared a value, and as such it had to have this wax applied. The wax melted onto the envelope and he had the stamp. Boom, you know. And I'm thinking, I don't believe this, I do not. Well, even at that time you thought it was pretty oh, yes. ludicrous. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. This was an era too where the railway authorities were very good at finding some form of gainful employment for employees who'd been injured on the job. Shunting accident or something of that nature. You had this motley collection of predominantly males. One of crushed his hand, another lost a foot. But there was a job there for these people, totally to their disability. And one chap had a job of going around with eucalyptus oil and swabbing all the phones to reduce cross-infection during wintertime with colds and what have you. <laughs> there were no exceptions, you know. The place just reeked of eucalyptus oil. Nobody was excluded or exempted from this regime. You know, and you had to give up your phone, you know, and you'd find yourself prizing your phone away from somebody, from this guy. And he had all these phones all glistening in a very shiny fashion, but no exceptions, you know, from the superintendent down, this this guy, he, he just loved it. <laughs> Did you have a uniform? If you were in the public eye, yes. But again, depending on your sort of status and your position. Station masters had uniforms, guards, porters, drivers didn't, right. not, not in this state anyway. They almost had their own code of dress standard and so forth. But your station clerks, ticket clerks, all had right. uniforms. Yeah. yeah. So you started off as a clerk? Yes. And then well, the progression begins? Uh, my aim was to get as broad a grounding as possible in all the various pursuits and disciplines in the place, ranging from I mean, the sort of behind-the-scenes jobs that would have applied would have been working in the roster office, so that you had a roster office for drivers and firemen and cleaners and so forth. You had a roster office for guards, railcar porters, 
you had sleeping car conductors on the overland particularly and the overnight train to Mount Gambier. You had people rostered for those sort of sorts of jobs as well. There was a livestock office. Once you had livestock in your hands, you had to deliver them safely to destination. So you were actually even determined at quite a young age that you wanted to get as broader experiences. Yes, yeah. You were doing that to advance yourself? Very, very much so, yes. I mean, on the one hand, you had study past papers in the various forms of safe working, signals, electric staff, train order working and so forth. You had a topic called tickets, station master's rules, station accounts, a whole host of things that you know, basically jumped through hoops to do. And where did you do the training? Uh, there was a body called the South Australian Railways Institute and they provided instructors to actually take you through the various papers then the examination side of things as well. And with the training were you sent off for a week's block or something or did you do it at night? How did the did, training? Did it, did it mainly at night? I mean a lot of this was taking place in, your, in one's own time. I developed into a system whereby I would actually go in after hours, particularly of an evening, I'd go into Adelaide train control and sit in with a train controller on a particular board. So it might be the Western board, which was the lines to Gladstone, Pirie and Moonta. So you had a train controller responsible for movements over those particular tracks. You had a North board, which was Tarawi, Morgan, Robertstown, Spalding, Angiston. And you're doing this in your own time? Yes. And they were happy for you, obviously. They, well, I, I had to actually apply and got formal approval of this yeah. arrangement. And what about the actual controllers themselves? Were they all very responsive? Were there any? No. Bit of a mixture. And what about the ones who were particularly helpful? It's, oh, who well, do you remember there? Oh, well, uh, the one I remember the most would be a chap by the name of John Walkham, but he was known as Gentleman Jack, and a thorough gentleman and very considerate, I guess, towards me. And which section did he control? Jack was mainly a South Line train controller. South Line looked after the line to Murraybridge and Tail and Bend and Wollonga and Mount Pleasant. What did you learn from Gentleman Jack? Uh, well, I guess it was the way in which he treated people out on the track, so to speak. Train control does warrant a certain temperament. It's not the ideal job for everybody. You've really got to be temperamentally suited. You have to be able to work under pressure. You have to be able to take things and not be phased by them. The one thing you don't want is train controller in panic mode. There were a couple of rather excitable train controllers who I tried not to cross paths with. You know, sometimes it, it was inevitable, but I did try and steer clear of some of those guys. Sometimes the language could be in the Adelaide control room could be rather blue at times. But it came over me that great interest to have but not a vocation for life. Because of the bureaucracy and the, the, the immovable structure? Or? Yeah, well, seniority. In the late 1960s, you couldn't have foreseen Australian National coming along, the divvying up of suburban lines from country lines. All that was way, way, years and years and years into the future. All I could see was seniority, okay, I get into train control, unless someone ahead of me dies, in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, this is where I'll be, this is where I've come from, this is what I will have achieved, you know, is it worth all the hassle? And I thought, no. And how long had you been in the railways when you sort of came uh, to this? Four years. Four okay. years so were you happy to leave? Because this had, had been your kind of life's ambition at that point. It had been, yes. But again, I, I increasingly recognised that great interest but not a vocation. Right. And I couldn't see seniority coming to an end. With seniority, the job was called, the vacancy was called for, let's say, an assistant train controller class six. 
in Port Lincoln, for example. And in would come all the applications. They'd be put into a file in the order of seniority. There'd be a red line drawn under number one. You got the job. Yeah. And nothing you could say or do would ever change that. Right. So if all went according to plan, you'd be at a certain place at a certain time. And what used to happen was that you'd start off as an assistant train controller. You'd do the rounds of Port Lincoln, Mount Gambier, Adelaide, Murray Bridge, Peterborough. You'd then go out again, same circle, as a train controller. There was a distinction between an assistant and a train controller. And the next time you went out was as an assistant superintendent. And the next time you went out and around the bout, you were superintendent. Yeah, right. all these moves were being made as you gradually climbed the company ladder. Yeah, right. I mentioned that we started patronising these special tour trains in 1963. Very early on in the piece, I was looking for something not mass-produced in relation to these trains. And all of a sudden, here we are, we're at Malang, we're shunting, turning the engines for the return trip to Adelaide. and. I look up in the cab and there's a solitary piece of paper sitting there on, on a clip and it's a train order and all of a sudden this is it. Okay, so you're showing me a okay, train well, order. What do you do? Pink well, slip of paper, yes. South Australian Railways train order F71377, train order number 54, 6th of September 1966. Train number 226 at Wilmington Station, proceed to... Gladstone. Gladstone. What I hit upon was, there's an original copy, and there are two carbon copies, one for the driver, one for the guard. And that's it. There are no more copies. So I thought, this is what I'm going to go after. I didn't get the orders on the train to Malang, but the first order was in July 1964. And from there, the collection has just grown and mushroomed over. Yeah, right. So how many do you now have? 390,000. Yeah, 390,000 visits to trains to actually collect them? No, I developed a system whereby I had drivers and guards and firemen out there collecting on my behalf. So how did you organise that? Mainly through one-on-one contact, knowing some of these people personally. Strictly speaking, if you have a look, Peter, at the instruction at the bottom. This form must be handed to relief engineman and guard when changing over and subsequently attached to engineman's daily report and guard strain journal on completion of trip. So obviously... I should have these. Right. So obviously you build up a level of trust with these people that they were willing to lout the regulations. Yes. 390,000 breaches of regulations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So when you were growing up, what point did you decide you were going to become a train controller? Uh, Not too soon after coming across train orders. Ah, right. Because Um, they're the authors of the train orders. Correct, yes. So they're in a central position. They're the ones that have got their time distance graph in front of them. They're plotting the, the movement of trains in their territory and they're issuing train orders as a consequence of that. The train order is a wonderful document. You can issue them for a whole variety of reasons. And so on a desert island, you're allowed to take three of your 390,000 train orders. Which three would you take? Um, train order one, 
of the 1st of January 2001. And where was that? That was at Port Pirie. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. The other two... Um, oh, that's all right. I mean, that's pretty interesting. I'm, and I'm very interested that you're willing to throw away 389,997. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, it's not the largest collection in the world. Is that right? There's two that beat me, yeah. Do you still get them? Uh, no. Since 1997, there was a head-on smash out on the Nullarbor Plain in broad daylight on a straight stretch of track. Both members of the crew have gone to sleep. And from that point on, they got very serious about this instruction on the bottom of them. And so all my sources dried up overnight. Right. Yeah. I mean, I still got the old one here and there, but for all intents and purposes, the, these were deemed to be a strictly accountable document, and hence there was no leaving them or you had to hand right. them in. So my sources have dried up. Thanks for listening to this oral history podcast from the National Railway Museum.